0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Cinemusts, the podcast that debates the must-see status of the films included in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. I'm your host, Mike Emmel, and I am joined for tonight's terrifying episode by the mad scientist who gave me a criminal brain, David Sandu. Welcome back, David.
1: Hey, how you doing? And it's not really a criminal brain. It's more of an abnormal brain.
0: In what way? <laughs> I just have to roll my R's. <laughs> I, I can't. I try to do it the British way, like they do in the movies, and it becomes Spanish. So I should just stop.
1: Any time I try an accent, it just turns into an Indian accent. So I've really just stopped. <laughs> oh,
0: man, well, it is it is great to have you back, man, and back in your wheelhouse. This is now this is your fifth appearance on the show. It isn't really fifth appearance on the show, and uh, four for five are horror.
1: I guess, I guess I really like uh, horror.
0: <laughs> we'll try our best to convince people you're not a serial killer like you so eloquently pleaded at the end of the mother episode. <laughs> welcome back, man, and welcome to everybody else. We are so happy to have you here. We hope that you enjoy the show. If you do, remember that you can find all of our previous episodes at our website at cinemus.com. You can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or other podcasting platforms. And for daily updates on show content, you can follow us on the social media platform of your choice. You just search for Cinemusts. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, we would also very much appreciate it if you could take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that not only helps our show gain more visibility, but more importantly, we get to see what you're thinking of the show and what we can do to improve it. And if you're not on iTunes, we would love your feedback just as much. You can reach us on our Facebook, our Twitter, our Instagram pages, as well as email us at cinemas at gmail.com. And uh, before we get rolling, just one last announcement. We hope everybody is having a fantastic October so far and watching a lot of scary movies. This year, we are delivering an extra episode on October 30th, just in time for Halloween. And the film discussed on that show is going to be decided by you, the listeners. So if you've got a scary movie that you want discussed on the show and put up for a vote to be included among the movies you absolutely have to see before you die, just let us know through our website, our social media pages, or you can email us. Again, we are at cinemas at gmail.com. And we're probably going to be taking those nominations roughly until October 20th, give or take, just to give us some time to pick the most popular choice and do a show on it. So... Really looking forward to seeing what everybody picks. Okay, so we're here today to debate the must-see status of two movies some might say are essential viewing. And to do that, we're going to need all of your help, as two people alone cannot decide if a film should be considered an absolute must-see. To help us build that essential cinema list, we need you all to visit this episode's post at cinemus.com and vote tonight's films into one of three categories that are based on your personal recommendation level. David, you are the supreme doctor here. Can you elaborate on what those three categories are?
1: Why, certainly. Uh, The first one is obviously Cinemusts. and that is where everybody should see this movie. Everybody should see uh, this kind of movie because even if they may not enjoy it or whatnot, uh, it's essential viewing for human beings. Cinetrust is, I would say that most people should watch this movie. I would say these people would probably like this kind of movie, but these people probably wouldn't. These are who I would uh, suggest it to. And then Cinebust is not necessarily a bad movie, but a movie that you probably wouldn't recommend to anybody.
0: Exactly. Thank you for including the it's not necessarily a bad movie tag. That's usually my annoying job. <laughs> Thanks a ton, man. You nailed it. And to demonstrate the system in action as an example, uh, we're going to go a little forward into the future to reveal the results from our last episode's poll. So, just me tonight to reveal the results of the poll. Normally, I would try to get Ezra back here in the studio to go over the results of the poll to kind of put some closure on the episode, but he's unfortunately unavailable today. But I was able to tell him how the poll turned out, and he was very pleased. Our listeners have voted both of the films featured on our last episode, Edward Scissorhands and Pan's Labyrinth, as cinema musts—movies that everybody has to see. Uh, Edward Scissorhands with sixty-one percent of the votes, leaning towards cinema must, and Pan's Labyrinth with sixty-seven percent. So a pretty vast majority of people love these movies, think everyone has to see them. So we are going to get them included on the list of essential must-see movies for everybody. This was also a fantastic turnout, our best one yet, so thank you to everybody who keeps spreading the word about the poll, who tells your film buff friends that they should cast their votes. It really helps make the essential viewing list more legitimate, and we absolutely love to read all of your comments and thoughts on these movies, which I'd also like to take a moment to share. So our first one comes from our friend Chris on Twitter. You can find him at Movie Bozo. Uh, of Edward Scissorhands, he said, Only saw Edward Scissorhands once, maybe 20 or so years ago, and it didn't leave much of an impression. I'll have to rewatch it. So I'm not sure if Chris has been able to rewatch the movie since commenting, but uh, now there's some added incentive, Chris. It's been voted an official must-see movie, so we hope you find that pleasing. Similar to how on our show we're going to give three reasons why we vote the movies the way we do, we also put out challenges on our social media for listeners to give Just one reason people should or should not consider the movies we talk about must-see movies, and we have a couple of responses from Instagram. Uh, Our first one comes from Brittany that says, I can't give just one reason, but if I must, Johnny Depp, heart. I also love the 60s style and the soundtrack. So Brittany went all out, gave us three reasons, which was awesome. Thanks so much, Brittany. Uh, Also from Instagram, giving her one reason why Edward Scissorhands is a must-see is Crystal Bright Life, who says, He is such a unique character that would seem scary, but he's just like a little baby who's just trying to understand how things work. And Johnny Depp, heart. So apparently a big reason why Edward Scissorhands is a must-see movie is because of young Johnny Depp. Can't argue with results, so thank you so much, Brittany and Crystal. And we have one more reason from Twitter from our friends at the 1000 by one podcast, who also cover movies found in the book 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. Uh their reason is actually a reason why Edward Scissorhands shouldn't be considered a must see. They say because they should be watching Ed Wood instead. Burton has always been a bit of style over substance filmmaker and Scissorhands is very indulgent in that regard. Ed Wood has always been more engaging for me both visually, I'm a black and white fiend, and from the strengths in its performances. So Pretty spot on. I'm inclined to agree. I think I said on the episode I would probably qualify Ed Wood as a better movie than Edward Scissorhands, Um, but Edward Scissorhands seems more quintessentially Burton. So that's a great take. Sorry that the results didn't quite turn in your favor, guys, but uh, thanks a ton for the comment. Much appreciated. That's all we have for Edward Scissorhands. If we move over to Pan's Labyrinth, just a couple of comments there. Uh, Again, Chris at Movie Bozo on Twitter said, I like Pan's Labyrinth a lot, so I'm leaning towards must-see on that. You are in the vast majority, Chris. Pan's Labyrinth, officially a must-see movie. Uh, Other people who have given us one reason why everyone should see Pan's Labyrinth, uh, the Cinema Recall podcast, who said, it's a must-watch. If you're not sold by the images in the trailers, I can't help you. So really calling out uh, what a visually stunning film Pan's Labyrinth is definitely a, a reason that influences a lot of people and, uh, and probably a key reason why it got voted the way it did. The Unlucky Ones podcast gave us a very specific reason, but uh, a really valid one. Their reason why Pan's Labyrinth is a must-see movie? Pale Man. Tis a bit short, but an unforgettable cinema moment. I think Ezra called out on the episode that even just for that brief five-minute scene, Pale Man kind of is the face of Pan's Labyrinth. He is one of the most memorable creature designs we've had uh, in, a, in almost a decade of movies since. So awesome reason the Pale Man's great. Definitely a big moment why it got voted the way it did. And our last comment comes from Cody Williams on Facebook, who said, What I've said, frighteningly beautiful. What others have said, it's in Spanish. Sorry that your recommendations have been met with such resistance, Cody, I think is what that message is saying. The subtitles can sometimes be uh, a bit of a hurdle for people, but uh, we're hoping that this kind of gives you some ammo in the arguments. 67% of our listeners have decided this is a movie that everybody has to see. So don't give up. Keep trying to spread the word. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth is very much worth it. Thank you again so much to everybody who takes the time to go to cinemas.com to vote on the must-see status of these movies. I love reading the comments. I love love it when things we didn't point out on the podcast are brought to our attention. So really thank you everybody for your time and your effort and for spreading the word. It is very much appreciated. So like I said, we will get Edward Scissorhands and Pan's Labyrinth included on the essential cinema list. And that poll is going to be locked down. The results are going to be locked in for a little while. But with a new episode comes a new chance to vote two more movies onto that list. So make sure to visit episode 23's post at cinemas.com to vote on the musty status of tonight's movies. If you're catching us on release day, that gives you about two weeks to head out, go watch the movies, come back to the poll and give us your thoughts, and we will reveal those results on our next episode. But I probably dragged on too long. I'm going to kick it back to David to talk about what tonight's films are going to be. But thank you again, everybody, for contributing to these polls, to getting these movies either onto or off of this must-see list. And uh, let's get going on debating two more.
1: Today, we are going to be talking about some of the most classic horror movies of all time. Frankenstein and its superior sequel... Bride of Frankenstein. These movies are so iconic that you could go to anybody on the street and ask them to describe what this iteration of the Frankenstein monster looks like and they will perfectly describe it without ever having seen the movie. They will know what the bride looks like without ever knowing that this movie existed. That's how iconic and in our culture these movies have been steeped. And so... I'm very excited to talk about both of these tonight, and these are personal favorites of mine.
0: I was going to say not to, to steal your announcement away if you intended it to, but I believe Bride of Frankenstein is your all-time favorite movie, is it not? It is,
1: and I try to watch it frequently, much to the dismay of my wife. She doesn't dig it. It's not necessarily her cup of tea, but she, you know, she acknowledges that she likes it. But you know, not everybody is is a big is a huge fan of the movie, which is. Which is fine, but it's still essential viewing for everybody. Spoiler alert.
0: Sure. Okay, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe I'm getting a little too ahead of myself, so <laughs> let's dive into that section. So uh, this is a part of our show. We're going to give spoiler-free general impressions of both of these movies. Uh, basically, just try to sell them to people who haven't seen them or heard of them yet. So we'll give a little plot summary. We're going to vote each one into one of those three categories that David just described. And then we are going to give three reasons why we voted the way we did, and that'll all be just spoiler-free to hook people, hopefully get some people interested in watching them, and from there we'll move into a spoiler discussion of both movies to back up the things that we said. And uh, we go chronologically, so it only makes sense to start with 1931's Frankenstein, which I have the plot summary for. So Frankenstein's about mad scientist Henry Frankenstein, who is obsessed with conquering death and bringing dead tissue back to life. When he succeeds in creating a living man from the pieces of corpses, He's horrified of his creation and abandons it, but the monster soon escapes and lashes out against the society that fearfully rejects it. You were just extremely positive about both of these movies, but we we have shown there's kind of a a skew on your side towards Bride of Frankenstein. So I'm very curious, David. How do you vote the original Frankenstein and why? You know, I had an interesting
1: experience when I was watching this movie recently. I was watching it with somebody who has never watched any of these old movies, and. They, when I was watching this one, they were surprised at how they got sucked into it, even though this isn't really their cup of tea. And I, you know, just looking at it from from an iconic classic standpoint, I still say that Frankenstein is essential viewing and a must uh, for everybody. Even though I love Bride more, Frankenstein is still quite a masterpiece and quite a feat for the time.
0: Okay, so that's a that's a hard cinema must. Yes, awesome. Do you got three reasons why?
1: I mean, kind of loosely, and it's it's hard because some of the ideas that I enjoy in this film are shared in the next. But mm-hmm. right, um, right. I think we share some of the reasons of why I think the idea of nurture versus nature, not to steal your thunder, is is part of. The beauty of the story in the first place, and I think that they do a good job of that. I think that there's a lot of beauty in the macabre shown in here, there's a lot of grotesque imagery, but they try to show it in a beautiful way, which is interesting to me. And I think that based on its just iconic imagery, I think it's important for people to see these kinds of films to know where their culture comes from and where the origins of what's in our society comes from. And I think that's another reason why people should see this movie.
0: All right. Those are solid. And um, yeah, you, you kind of, we, we sync up on a lot of these because I'm also voting it a, a cinema must for mostly the same reasons. My number one reason is that it's the movie that cemented the legacy of classic monster movies. It came very hot off the heels of Dracula starring Bela Lugosi, which was a colossal hit. That was released on Valentine's Day in 1931. I think that Frankenstein came out in Thanksgiving. So they're right up next to each other, but Frankenstein's the one that kind of proved that it wasn't just uh, a one-hit wonder that these horror movies had a lot to say uh, about social relevance, like you're saying, and uh, our culture has taken the ball and run with it there. Uh, my second reason, uh, identical to yours, I think it's a great movie about the nature versus nurture debate. Um, the movie takes some liberties with Mary Shelley's novel. I mean, it... It really takes all the liberties <laughs> with the novel. Anyone who studies the movie will tell you that it resembles the book hardly at all. Um, but some of the choices the movie makes, I think, make for some thematically rich discussion. So I'm excited to talk about that. But thirdly, this was a, a tough one for me because Frankenstein's a movie that I find very narratively jerky. Um, I, th- I think that's actually kind of common of a lot of these old classic monster movies that when you watch them, through like a modern eye, it always seems like there's a scene missing that got like a certain character from like point A to point B, things kind of just happen for no reason. But my my third reason is that I think that narrative jerkiness is more than compensated for having some of horror's most iconic scenes. And I extend that to the imagery, like you said, and I, I got those scenes listed in spoilers, we'll go through them one at a time. But um, yeah, like you said, this is a This is a landmark. People know this movie without ever having seen it. So I think it's definitely one that um, if you haven't seen it, you should bust it out. And uh, now's the perfect time. It's October. So glowing recommendations for the first one. And I think uh, it's only going to get better as we go into Bride of Frankenstein. What's that movie about, David? Bride of
1: Frankenstein picks up exactly where the first one leaves off. Uh, Essentially, if you were going to say that these movies were adapted from the book, loosely, (laughs) the first movie is essentially the first half of the book, and the second movie is the second half of the book, loosely. And it is about the Frankenstein monster, has re-emerged after the events of the first movie, and is seeking friendship and companionship, and... During this, an evil doctor, another mad doctor, Dr. Pretorius, comes to try to seduce Frankenstein into creating a bride, a female monster, so that they could create a race of man-made men. Mike, we all know how I feel about this movie. How do you vote this movie? And, and just real quick, just to be clear... Don't you watch this movie? Isn't this essential viewing for you every Halloween?
0: Yes, this and Psycho are the only two movies I watch every single October. There's only two, and Bride of Frankenstein is one of them. So I'm very high on this movie, though I would not dare to say I am quiet at your level, but I aspire. I am, I am the Fritz to your Frankenstein on this one. Um... Yes. Bride of Frankenstein's a total cinema must for me. Uh, if, if for the first one, I'm saying that everyone has to see it because it's, um, it's iconic, you know it. you really just have to see it for yourself. There's a lot, uh, there's a lot of rewarding stuff in there. Bride of Frankenstein is really a movie that I would just be like, you haven't seen it. Like come over to my house right now. We're going to watch it. I think it's a masterpiece of horror filmmaking. So it's difficult to whittle it down to just three reasons why, but, um, The first one I had is this is the first superior sequel in movie history, which maybe I'm wrong. I was going to ask you, do you think there is an earlier sequel that was better than its predecessor before Bride of Frankenstein?
1: I don't believe so. I mean, sequels were kind of rare
0: back then. So these kind of monster movies almost invented sequels.
1: Yeah. So in a
0: lot of in a lot of ways though, it's definitely not the first sequel. Bride of Frankenstein is maybe the first one that proved sequels were a good idea.
1: Yeah. I I I agree with that. It really is uh quite shocking that they figured this out in 1935 and we have a hard time with it today.
0: I mean, to be fair though, I think the Bride of Frankenstein stands out um when you watch a lot of the other sequel to these horror movies, they are Very clearly not up to snuff. So I should say Bride of Frankenstein proves sequels are a good idea when you uh, handle them properly. Yeah. We'll get into that in spoilers. There was a lot of very wise decisions made by the executives at Universal and bringing back James Whale and taking the movie in a different direction. But uh, that's we're getting ahead of ourselves. I still got to list off two more reasons. My other two reasons are actually performance-based because where I feel the first Frankenstein is one that I gravitate towards for its imagery Um, bride while still very iconic looking is where the emotional core of this franchise really rests for me. So my second reason is that Boris Karloff's performance solidifies the Frankenstein monster as cinema's most sympathetic monster. Um, This is the movie where I think he gives a better performance because he's a lot more accessible. We get at the core of his character more uh, and he gets to do a lot more. He finally gets to talk so I think it's probably his best performance and probably one of the all-time great horror performances. So Boris Karloff is the monster is my number two. And my third one is kind of a reason just for me. I wanted to kind of round this out academically and find some other thing about the subtext or something like that. But I had to stick with like the real reason why this is a must-see for me every October. Ernest Thesiger as Dr. Pretorius is the greatest scenery chewing performance in movie <laughs> history i get so excited every time he knocks at the door because that kind of signals that it's october and scary movie month for me so i have my third reason has to be ernest Thesinger as dr pretorius those are my three i we kind of know where you're voting david but i want to hear why what do you think of bride of frankenstein
1: we kind of overlap a little bit i think that the performances in this movie are really great. In the first movie, you had some pretty good performances. Colin Clive is great as Henry Frankenstein and Boris Karloff, I think, is still great as the monster in the original one. In fact, I think Boris Karloff himself preferred the original movie over the performance in Bride Frankenstein at times. I think he may have changed his mind later, but you're right. This movie has great performances from Boris Karloff and Colin Clive and, and Dr. Pretorius's character, Ernest uh, Thesiger, is fantastic. I would also like to add to that, Elsa Lanchester has just a few minutes on screen as Mary Shelley and the Bride, and she steals it. She is so memorable. I love her performance. I love almost all the characters. The only thing thing that gets me back is I don't like Minnie. I think
0: Uno O'Connor...
1: I kind of think she she pushes a little too far. I actually liked her in Invisible Man more than I like her in this movie.
0: You know that might be fair. I think uh, it works better in Invisible Man. I mean, um, but still.
1: You have Dwight Fry return. I mean, you have great you have a great cast here who really like feels a little bit more comfortable in their roles than they would have in the first movie. So, those performances are incredibly important. Elsa Lanchester was actually on my list as one of the reasons. The other thing is, and maybe it's just particular scenes, but that scene with the blind man and Ave Maria, the sincerity and beauty of that scene is just one of the best scenes in film, I believe. Yeah. And I think that people need to see that scene, not just as a clip on YouTube, but in context. And it's such a beautifully well done scene. Um, I love some of the subtext of the monsters within us, the inverse price, the gay subtext. And uh, it it also just amazes me the difference between... What's fun is, I think, watching both of these movies back-to-back is you get to see the evolution of Hollywood filmmaking within that four-year period. When Frankenstein came out, it had only been... What, four years since they started using sound, and they were still trying to figure out how to adapt movies away from the silent picture era. And by the time they get to Brighter Frankenstein, they have figured it out to something that's a lot more familiar to us. But Frankenstein sits in a world where it's in between the familiar and unfamiliar, and it makes for an interesting watch. But Brighter Frankenstein flows so much better than Frankenstein, I think
0: it definitely is a movie more in tune with modern sensibilities is there anything else you feel necessary to say to people who have not seen the movie before we move into spoilers
1: i think that these movies they they will thrill you they may even shock you <laughs> they might even horrify you so if you have <laughs> if you if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such strain now's your chance to well we warned you
0: spot on there is no better segue let's let's just leave it there um everybody go see these movies that is a 100 percent recommendation rate from us but let's move into spoilers and start diving deep into frankenstein
2: have you never wanted to do anything that was dangerous where should we be if nobody tried to find out what lies beyond you never wanted to look beyond the clouds and the stars Ought to know what causes the trees to bud, and what changes a darkness into light. But if you talk like that, people call you crazy. Well, if I could discover just one of these things, what eternity is, for example, I wouldn't care if they did think I was crazy.
0: So one thing I'm interested about with um, Frankenstein is we both agreed that this movie to this day dominates the image of Frankenstein. Other classic monsters have a pretty stronghold. You know, if you think of Dracula, Bela Lugosi still plays pretty prominently in your mind. The Wolfman, you know, other werewolves have kind of supplanted him, but nothing has ever supplanted this version of Frankenstein and many have tried. So my question to you is, if people already know this movie secondhand without ever having seen it, what are our big selling points for why they've gotta go and watch the whole thing?
1: Because it's an experience. Frankenstein is an is a weird movie. The thing is, is that things become iconic and classic because they're good. There was some value there that society wanted to remember it. And so we do ourselves a disservice to only take the the light version of it oh yes i'm okay with just the image of knowing it but knowing where it comes from gives you a richer experience to understand our cult the cultural significance everybody should see jaws everybody knows the song but when you know the song in context it means so much more and uh, i think it's important for people to figure those things out and see them for themselves
0: If you were to to kind of boil down like the one experience of watching the movie that you would want to pass on to someone who hasn't seen it, what would it be?
1: Are you able to answer that first and then I can answer it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I can can give it a shot because for me, um, these iconic scenes that I went on about are kind of what I would uh, call out that because I think everybody has a loose knowledge of these things, but there is something about the emotional experience of them. So I kind of picked five scenes that I felt were just some of horror's most iconic moments. And these are the things that no matter how jerky the movie can seem, how the interior logic kind of falls apart, like these five touchstones um really make the movie something that everyone has to see. And and funny enough the first one is just that introduction with Edward Van Sloan where he comes out and gives you the warning from Carl Emley that it will shock you. It might horrify you. And um, I love that as uh, kind of the 1930s version of clickbait that by giving the warning, he is really satiating your appetite for the macabre. But then my other four uh, that are part of the movie themselves, I think the creation scene is one of them. Um, Frankenstein's philosophical speech to Dr. Waldman after the monster's been created right before he's introduced. Uh, The third one is the death of the little girl Maria who drowns and fourth is the big windmill finale. Everybody knows Frankenstein holes up in a windmill that is burned down to the ground. And, and it's kind of funny because I don't know if I have like a, a connective tissue. You know, I don't think that there's one thing that all five of those scenes embody that they each kind of tackle one idea or one philosophical argument at a time. And the creation scene, to me, I mean, do you want me to like list, go, go through these now or do you want to interject with your thing?
1: Well, I interject with, I think that those are all some of my favorite scenes. So, one more scene that I would add to that is I absolutely love the scene where the monster reaches for the light.
0: Yes, I could, I should uh, pack that with the speech to Dr. Waldman. You're right. That's probably the best moment of, of Karloff's pantomime performance. He doesn't get to speak, but he really says everything that is essential about that character in that one moment. It really is.
1: There's just something so beautiful about this these mangled arms and these, this, this frightening macabre creature reaching for light and, and reaching for that warmth. It's, it really does set up the way that we're going to feel about this creature throughout the entire series. Uh, even as bad as the movies get, that's how we will feel about Frankenstein is this Creature that has been only in darkness, and when brought to the light, everything goes wrong. It seems like I think that a lot of those images and those scenes are what are great emotional experiences for people. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, let's we can dive into those. I do want to point out just some fun facts a fun fact, real fast that yes, please, this movie and Dracula before were huge risks. Carl Lemley was only. The universal producer, the CEO for, I think, like six or seven years.
0: It was about five years. About five years. He saved the studio and then bankrupted it in the space of five years.
1: Because he he would take these huge risks, but he was right. What's crazy, though, is that Carl Lemley Jr. was the Weinstein of his day. He was a terrible sexist misogynist who used the casting couch to his advantage. He was a terrible, terrible person. And it's, it's just interesting that these things that we are dealing with socially now are very similar to the things that they were dealing with socially back then. And in that context, yeah. watching these movies, these themes never get old. These themes from both of these movies are themes that we can pull out and apply them to our life now. And I think that's one of the things that makes these movies hold up.
0: I have a a question I'd like to ask along with kind of the, the backstory of its production is these movies took off single-handedly saved universal universal to this day admits it. When you go to the theme park in California and you take the studio tour, they, they openly say like, Warner Brothers did gangsters, MGM did musicals, we have our monsters. So the question I want to ask is, why do you think that these horror movies did so well in the, you know, the throes, the midst of the Great Depression? Why do you think these were the ones that were making all the money?
1: You know, I think it's that we are generally attracted to the macabre. And these movies didn't come out with monsters that were you know it seems like when we have monsters nowadays they have a million teeth and no eyes pale skin and they're completely mindless animal creatures but when they decided to present the world with monsters not only were they basing it off of classic literature that people were familiar with dracula and the and the monster are these charismatic and sympathetic creatures and it plays with your emotions and I think that there's at one point an intrigue into that but there's also maybe a connection of getting beat down by the system where the good guys are bad and the bad guys are good. It's hard to figure out in the Frankenstein movies at least who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. Dr. Pretorius is probably the clearest villain in the entire at both of these movies. But in the first Frankenstein, there really is not a villain. There's really not a, a monster per se. They're all sort of monsters.
0: That's pretty spot on. It's, this is a question I was wrestling with because I, I've read a lot of articles that said, well, horror did so well in the midst of the Great Depression because escapism was key. And uh, Amanda and I talked about that when we talked about it happened one night, you know, was this you know, fantastical road trip with this rich era. So it both spoke to issues of, you know, middle class, but it kind of let them go along with upper class at the same time. But, you know, I never really bought the escapism angle for why these horror movies succeeded, because if you wanted to get away from your depressing life, why, why was it so popular to, to go to these movies that just portrayed death and disfigurement? And, um, I think it's a mix of both of of escapism and confronting the issues, and especially in Frankenstein because Dracula is a great movie. I really like Dracula, um, but I think socially that one's kind of at arm's length for audiences at the time. Dracula is a count; he's very fancy and regal, and so maybe that plays into more of escapism. Frankenstein, you know, he's the son of a baron, but you know when he creates his monster. I think James Whale has said that the the shabby, you know, short-sleeve suit is inspired by like hobos he'd seen riding, you know, the train cars and things like that. There there does seem to be a lot of relatability to the monster which I think contributes to his wild success and imprint on culture that like you said it's it's difficult to tell who the bad guy is in the first Frankenstein because the good doctor himself is very callous and does not consider the implications of what he's doing. He's half crazed most of the time. Um, But, you know, the monster really steals the show, which I think is why, you know, Bride of Frankenstein essentially becomes a movie about the monster and not Dr. Frankenstein. I think this is also
1: a time in which there's a lot of, in the first film, there's a lot of societal unity. The... People fight with each other. They worry about each other. They're, they're poor and they're rich and they're all, they all care for each other. And I think that that is, plays into some of the escapism to see a society that's like that when people were living in a society that did not reflect that. And, and then you have this thing that messes it up. It's, it's like the economic crash almost. It, it kind of unhinges everybody. I think that there's a lot of You know, I don't think that James Wells, as brilliant as he was, was trying to put a whole bunch of things in from the society at the time necessarily and trying to make comments on on these different things that we're putting on him now. But I think that in the back of his mind as an artist, he just kept pulling from the time and there was something very recognizable, like you said. And I think that that's what helped these movies take off and people really enjoyed them.
0: From all the interviews and making of things I've seen, it seems like James Whale was always kind of just interesting in doing what James Whale felt like, and he never necessarily had an agenda or anything like that. He just knew what amused him, and he kind of just figured out a way to package it together. And turns out, it didn't amuse just him; it was wildly accepted, and um, everybody just really latched onto it. So. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to debate on like, well, what did he really intend, especially with uh, how heavily censored the later movies became? It's when we get to Bride of Frankenstein, it'll be fun to talk about what they got away with. So that's us saying like, well, why were these why these movies were successful in the Great Depression? But what about them is still relevant to today, which I think you and I kind of both agree is essential to consider a movie a must see.
1: I think that the nurture versus nature argument is never going to go away and i think that this is the prototype for that argument this is the original argument you know, the the monster is somebody that we can immediately sympathize with because he's being tortured immediately and i think that that conversation is is always going to be around but i mean we've had lots of examples of that in different movies and different stories and so why is it that this one is the one to watch I think it's tied very deeply with the fact that this film is a classic and it really resonated with people. I think it's hard to separate it from, can it just stand on its own today? I think the history behind it is is some of the stuff that props it up as well. I don't know if that makes any sense.
0: No, it totally does. And I mean, from my standpoint, it might be kind of a cheap stance to make, but you know, why, why this movie and not other movies that have handled it, uh, because it's a lot of fun to watch movies where these issues are handled through monsters and the fantastical and things like that. I, you know, I'd much rather watch a movie like this than just like a a drama set in suburbia about, you know, a misunderstood kid or something. I'm not trying to say like movies like that are inherently bad, but you know, I'm, Anthony said this thing on the King Kong episode or no, I said it paraphrasing him from when we did the Godzilla and them episode that we feel movies are kind of made for this, that, you know, you can get those, those dramas on, in theater, you can get them in like a bunch of different places, but cinema itself is kind of poised to handle these issues with the fantastical or even the silly. And to me, that's the strength of Frankenstein. Uh, The first one plays a lot less into the, the humor aspects of what the series would become, but you know, there's still a couple of good moments. There's Fritz pulling up his sock and, uh, I always laugh when he drops the brain. I don't know if I'm being informed by young Frankenstein, but I, I still think even James Whale's original framing of Fritz stealing the, the normal brain. And then the abnormal brain is actually pretty funny. <laughs>
1: Can we just acknowledge real quickly for anybody who's seen the bride of, I mean, young Frankenstein Yes, it's a funny movie on its own. You really don't need to watch anything else. But I promise you, if you go back and you watch The Brighter Frankenstein, Frankenstein, The Son of Frankenstein, and The Ghost of Frankenstein, this Young Frankenstein will be not only just a funny movie, it is a masterpiece. It is a masterclass of parody yes. and homage because the things that he puts in there... The things that you think are jokes are from the original movie. There are a few jokes that he actually came up with for Young Frankenstein, which Mel Brooks is a genius. And it, it makes me appreciate all of them just more having them in context.
0: Agreed. Young Frankenstein is great because it, it basically is a Frankenstein movie if you chart the trajectory of them. In my fantasy world, I sometimes said if you if you kind of cut everything off after the bride and Young Frankenstein becomes just the legitimate third movie, uh, I think this would be one of the best trilogies of all time.
1: <laughs> it would. It would totally. It totally stands up.
0: But so I want to ask a question about the brain, um, and this goes back to the nature versus nurture debate. Do you think that this subplot of giving the monster a criminal brain so that they can justify its violence. Do you think that that subplot hurts this argument, or does it improve it? I think it improves the argument. Henry
1: himself says, well, it's just tissue. It's the other doctor, which I'm forgetting his name. Uh, Baldman. He says, well, you know, no, it's it's not. And they have this argument of nurture versus nature in that moment. And I think that that works in the way that we view people today. I think the abnormal brain and the normal brain represent the way that we look at people and it shows our bigotry and prejudice in that we label something and we think, well, then that's what it has to be, so... This brain, which is just sinews at this point, it's just the fabric of life, it really doesn't retain any of the memories. Nowhere does it ever show us that the monster has a memory of his past to inform his current state of mind. But it was an abnormal brain, so obviously he's going to be evil. He's going to kill, right? Um, That's the assumption. But we're shown very quickly, that he has a capacity to love, and if he was loved, he probably would not have reacted in the way that he
0: did. And I'd, I'd call out the scene you pointed out when he's first introduced and reaches for the light, and right before that scene, they point out, you have to remember, he's just a few days old, which kind of frames the entire performance of, you know, this, this baby practically, but it's, it's just born instantly into this massive, gargantuan body that is disfigured and scarred, but you know, that's not what it sees, it sees light and wants to reach for it, and um, I like the end of that scene when they turn the light away, and he's very sad, and he has that moment where he's still kind of like waving his hands, and he's, he's so sad that that influence is gone, it is quickly made worse by Fritz coming in with the torch, and like you said, from then on out, within the first few days of coming into being, the monster is just, tortured and taught fear and it's taught to lash out because that's the only way it can protect itself it doesn't i don't think the monster ever once experiences anything that's akin to acceptance or love in the first movie i don't think there's one
1: scene the 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 girl maria
0: that's true yeah and oh my gosh okay so let's move to that because out of the five scenes i listed as iconic this one is top of the list because that moment is acted so well by Boris Karloff. I I, sh- I, gave him a shout out for Bride of Frankenstein. I think that that movie, he gives the better performance as the monster, but this, this is definitely one of the key moments for this character through, you know, however many dozens of movies it's been in. Um, yeah, exactly. You nailed it. A moment of acceptance of somebody who doesn't look at him and recoil in fear, but Wants to play with him, wants to teach him how to do something, to appreciate beauty with throwing the flowers in the water. This might be a hot take, but I think that scene is actually too short. I think that after he throws her in the water because he just thinks things float, he doesn't understand that people drown, and the instant fear he has and you just see her splashing around and he reaches out, I think that moment is cut too short in the edit. And I understand why that, as you mentioned, we're we're at the very brink of getting movies to move from silent to sound like a lot of things are very shocking. And, you know, this movie was in its time touted as the scariest thing ever made. So I get why there's not this long shot on this little girl drowning. But to me, a scene is missing here. There's there's 10 seconds missing here of watching him digest her drowning. Well, there probably Um, was.
1: I mean, it it wasn't until the last 20, 30 years that that scene was reintroduced into the film. Most of the states, when it was going on its tour, had to have that scene removed because it was so offensive That's right. when the movie first came out. So there very well could be a few seconds of that scene missing.
0: Oh, if we could only discover it. But this the scene works perfectly well because you see him after she drowns, He he gets up and he's right back to the fear. He's just stumbling through the woods. Um, I, I think it's the best scene in the movie because it, it is simultaneously showing that, um, he's capable of good with, with a little affection and love. He's capable of being the ideal kind of Promethean man, but he lacks the understanding and, um, his, his one mistake, which is really just made in ignorance. This is not a, this is not a murder by any means. This is a complete accident because he's never been taught how water works and that people can't live in it without proper swimming instruction, which let's let's be real here. Let's call out crappy parenting. Um, this family lives by a lake, and they never taught their daughter to swim. Who's the real villain, Dave? I think we found the real villain of the first Frankenstein. <laughs>
1: Well, they they suffer enough. So I think that
0: <laughs> they do. Oh, my gosh, that that tracking shot of um him carrying her body through town is oh,
1: fantastic.
0: This. Yeah, this, I, I back down from this reason. But I've, I've sometimes kind of thought that out of all of these old classic horror movies that Frankenstein is one of the few that I think is still scary. And I back down from making it one of my reasons because I didn't want everyone watching it and then being like, that wasn't scary at all. Like what a, what a crock. But you know, moments like that, I think that is such a hard hitting image to see this just limp little girl getting drugged by her comatose faced father through the town that is in the midst of a celebration. And once again, balancing like that, that happy moment with this moment of horror, which is going to show up a lot more in Bride of Frankenstein. Um but yeah, I think it's a great scene. Did I did I step on anything that you wanted to say about it?
1: No, you I mean, just Ditto. That that scene is is horrifying and sad and so well done and I I appreciate the time in which they put in that scene. That scene is incredibly long and it's jarring. I mean, cuz the longer and longer it goes, you're just seeing this very you, you just start to see the details of her wet, dirty, limp body and the the deadness in the father's eyes at that point, the not even, not even anger or sadness yet. Just, just parading his daughter around. Maybe that's the wrong word, but to show like what has happened. And and you, you understand like, and that's the thing. Like, it's hard to say who's the bad guy in this film because you completely understand where they're coming from when they're coming after him. There's, there's no way to say that they're wrong. It's, Really, I guess Fritz is the bad guy. I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, w- I was going to say Fritz, but I think there's a... When you, when you kind of delve into like, why is Fritz such an asshole? Um, there's there's maybe an interesting suggested backstory that um, Fritz used to be Frankenstein's pet, and now he's very jealous that there's a new, better specimen in town. That's kind of what I make of Fritz, but yeah, he's he's a jerk, and when he dies, you don't really feel... Uh, super bad about it because the scene of him torturing the monster in the dungeon and shoving the torch in his face, that look of horror that Karloff has as he's trying to wave it away is really rough. I think that scene is pretty quintessential along with the reaching for the light scene and getting us to sympathize with the monster because that's a moment where no matter like, no matter how otherworldly this thing is, you can recognize like nothing really deserves that like completely unwarranted.
1: No, and and just to point out, Fritz is played by the the lovely Dwight Fry, who happened to appear in almost all of these classic horror movies, and he frequently appears in the rest of the Frankenstein movies, only to be killed <laughs> almost every yeah, time. <laughs> that's
0: that's his thing. He shows up in Frankenstein to get murdered. Uh, uh, I would suggest this is his best murder.
1: It's a pretty good one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, getting getting hung up is that's a that's another image that's pretty striking and yeah. a little scary. Let's talk about society's rejection of the monster with that windmill finale because I think that that's one of my scenes that's my final iconic scene from the movie and I think we all know that image without even having seen the movie because I think that that image sums up the idea of society turning on an outcast. Like that that image of cornering some other and grab your your torch and pitchforks like that whole idea is all summed up and comes from this sequence where they can't get at him let's burn down the entire windmill so it can die in agony
1: yeah and i mean it's it's also like we get that image of the monster and the windmill on fire but it's so horrifying to see the fear in his eyes and in his voice as he is being burned alive. I mean, it is... They could have easily... The original idea of the movie when uh, Bella Lugosi was going to be in it and um, uh, who's the director of Dracula? Todd Browning. Yeah, he was supposed to direct this, right? Right. And their original idea Thank was to make goodness. the monster a monster like he was going to be unsympathetic it was james whale that came in and said no let's let's make this much more sympathetic i think it's an interesting decision to show the creature that killed a little girl and threw frankenstein off of the windmill to have his back seemingly broken (laughs) and and then to linger the camera on watching the fear and the the And how terrified he is. And I wonder how this played back then. I wonder if this was... Like, I have this thing. When I watch a movie and I see a villain... And that villain's going to meet their demise... I'm very disappointed when the villain just dies. I want to see them tortured. And so, I wonder if... If this plays differently back then. Back then, are they watching this movie... And if they're not feeling sympathy for them... Are are they going, yeah, no, I want to see the monster tortured. Oh, this is great. You know, he's getting what he deserves... Or is that my modern lens looking back and going, oh, that's so horrifying. That is one of the most horrifying images in the movie.
0: Well, isn't that kind of the genius of the scene is it, it works for either audience. If if you see the monster as the villain who has to be punished, like what a fantastic villain death to, you know, get pinned down that that image of the beam. And I know that the frame rate is sped up, but I think it really works that him getting pinned down by the rafter, still alive while the rest of the mill goes up. I mean, that would be a very satisfying end to someone you label as a villain. But if uh, you read it a different way back then and you were kind of on the monster side, all of a sudden the the social commentary really kicks in because you cut from that image to just this mob of people just screaming in endorsement that this windmill is is being brought down and this thing is suffering. So... I think that's a big component of why the this the image is pretty seared into our cultural memory and why it persists is because it kind of works for both audiences.
1: Yeah. No. Fair.
0: Anything else you want to say about the windmill?
1: I mean, it's just so cool that they light that thing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, awesome. I mean, the production. We haven't talked about this. The the sort of um, German surrealistic uh, vibe going on here. This this gothic. Uh, set pieces throughout the entire film both of these films are really great the just the sets Mm -hmm. alone and the 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 costumes and this sort of this sort of mix of modern and old and different like he cre, you know whale created a a society that's not recognizable to any society back then he just sort of picked all these hodgepodge things to create this world uh, not too dissimilar from the Batman the Animated Series of mixing old and new uh, fashions and technologies. And the set pieces and having the entire windmill catch on fire, uh, it's just a beautiful film to look at. I think that's another thing is that f- shot by shot, frame by frame, it is a beautiful film. And uh, it works so well as an abstract work of art as well
0: that's another thing that I could point to to solidify my point that it cements the legacy of monster movies. Um, I love, I love Dracula, but after the first 20 minutes, when Dracula moves out of Transylvania, it, it really becomes kind of a filmed stage play. And that speaks to budgetary constraints, taking the risk, uh, as well as Todd Browning was not very comfortable making a talking movie. He, he really wanted to make a silent movie and they were forcing him to do a talkie. Frankenstein embraces all that so there's still a lot of Frankenstein that comes off as stagey especially in like the Frankenstein manor and stuff but I mean when you get out to the watchtower or the windmill or the countryside you know it it opens up a lot more to being a fantastical visual experience to help you escape it's not just about being confined to a couple people in a room it does have a lot more sweeping scope to it
1: yeah, it's definitely interesting because I think that modern audiences will look back and see this movie as uh, a period piece. While at the time, the movie was probably more fantasy, where yeah. Dracula was a little bit more recognizable in that it didn't go off into the fantastic. There are lots of elements that are fantastical about Frankenstein that we don't recognize, which I th- I think is, is interesting. Um, I also wanted to bring up just... So I think it's interesting that this being a film coming out of the era of silent, there's not a soundtrack. There's not music to tie the scenes together. And I think that's really interesting. But it also makes some of the scenes that are more poignant and the scenes that we've talked about, I think they make them work because the movie is essentially silent. And so when you have these moments of excitement... Uh, they really land especially and we have to play this clip again the It's Alive It's Alive It's Alive too. It's Alive
2: It's Alive It's Alive It's Alive It's Alive, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Oh, In the name of God oh, I know what it feels like to be God
1: Just hearing him so crazy, so freaking crazy, Colin Clive gives it his all. And I mean, that line has stuck with us forever. I, I, in a hundred mm-hmm. years, people are still going to be quoting Colin Clive from this movie, even if this movie falls away into the dust and nobody remembers it.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. It's, it's absolutely iconic. And I think that um, lack of music contributes to this one feeling still kind of scary. Um, like that the absence of music to kind of guide your emotions, I think makes the visuals speak for themselves. And like you said, because they're so off kilter and influenced by that journal German expressionism, I think the movie feels a lot more unsettling. And especially in that creation scene, uh, which is so loud, like all the effects of the thunder and the, the laboratory equipment and everything. Like it's a really jarring sequence. And I can actually, I don't have to imagine because I did get to see this in a theater once upon a time, It's really like in your face and kind of gets on your nerves. So I can only imagine in 1931, having never seen anything like this, the effect that would have
1: for sure. And hot take, by the way, I think that the creation scene in this movie is the best version of the creation scene in all of the films that have come out based off of the Frankenstein book and the book itself.
0: I would agree. I don't even know what's uh, in competition with it. I mean, you know, I mean, maybe maybe the one in the Bride, but that is kind of just uh, this again with different equipments.
1: Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I do like the creation scene, but that's different. But I mean, just the initial creation of the original monster in all of the adaptations of the of Frankenstein and Frankenstein, the book itself, the creation scene in the book is probably one of the worst scenes in the book, and it's
0: barely a scene. It barely it's is. It's like, so dumb. I, I was mean, there, it really... and boop, there he was.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then he goes to his room, and he falls asleep. And here, they have, even though it's very pulled-together pseudoscience that they made up, I appreciate the effort in which they cr- tried to create explanations and a science behind how they created the monster, which that is 100% absent from the book, which I think people forget. And the It's a Live line is from the movie, not from the book and so it's it's one of those moments that surpasses the original source material despite what people say when they're like well you know nobody's ever done the original frankenstein movie justice i argue that without the inclusion of this kind of scene you will never do the original book a great justice because that scene will always be a deficiency in it
0: so hot take off a hot take i don't think the source material novel is filmable. I think it's a great book. I'm not trying to say, oh, people have it wrong. It's a classic for a reason, but the way that the book is written does not work as a movie.
1: Yeah, no, I think I'd probably be okay with that assertion. I think Kenneth Branagh did his best shot at it with uh, Robert De Niro, but it still turned out as, and I actually kind of like that movie, it still turned out to be a mess. And I think he was trying to bridge... That movie with this one, with adding
0: Abs- the, absolutely the
1: German expressionism and the set pieces, and it, and although visually interesting, doesn't work as well. I would say a better version of that would probably be Bram Stoker's Dracula.
0: Yeah, I haven't watched either of them in so long. I think for October it would be really fun to do like those '90s reboots. So like Coppola's Dracula, Branagh's Frankenstein, the Wolf movie with Jack Nicholson maybe hollow man. That'd be fun.
2: Those
1: would be interesting. That'd be interesting. There's no creature from the black lagoon though. So I think you'd have to go. With I Mon- know. You'd have to go uh, with monster squad then.
0: Yeah. It's yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I like okay. that movie. be
0: well, we're, we're about at time. Is there anything else you want to say about the original Frankenstein?
1: If you haven't seen it, just do yourself a favor, go watch this movie you may never want to see it again, but you should see where part of your culture comes from. And it, is an experience. It certainly is an experience that you have not seen in any modern film, and it's worth it.
0: And we, we blew this by not mentioning this in general impressions, but it's easy. It's an hour 50. You can watch both these movies in under two and a half hours. They're quick. Like, you are not out a lot of time.
1: Well, no, the original one is... Uh, oh, it's only, yeah, it's only 71 minutes. That's yeah. right. Never mind.
0: Yeah, they're, they're like an hour 10 apiece.
1: Yeah, not very long at all.
0: Yeah, so the, the, the nice thing, so this is only the second time we've done an original and its sequel. We did the Mad Max movies back in episode two, but uh, the nice thing is, is we're out of time for this one, but we do get to carry a lot of the ideas forward as we move into Bride of Frankenstein. Uh,
2: come in, my poor friend. No one will hurt you here. If you're in trouble, perhaps I can help you. But you need not tell me about it if you don't want to. What's the matter? Ah! You're hurt, my poor friend. Come. Now tell me, who are you? Uh, uh, uh. I don't understand. Can you not speak? Uh, uh. It's strange. Perhaps, perhaps you're afflicted too. I cannot see and you cannot speak. Is that it? <laughs> if you understand what I'm saying, put your hand on my shoulder. That is good. We shall be friends. I have prayed many times for God to send me a friend. <sighs> It's very lonely here. And it's been a long time since any human being came into this hut. I shall look after you. And you will comfort me. Ah, Father, I thank Thee. That in Thy great mercy, Thou hast taken pity on my great loneliness. And now, out of the silence of the night, has brought two of thy lonely children together and sent me a friend to be a light to mine eyes and a comfort in time of trouble. Amen.
0: It's kind of tough to know where to start here, but I'd kind of like to just open it up with my first point that I think Bride of Frankenstein is a must see movie because it is the first superior sequel in movie history. And I think that that is, at this point, kind of common knowledge. I think most people would say the Bride of Frankenstein surpasses the original. However great the original is, The Bride is the better movie. So, in a very general sense, David, why do you think The Bride surpasses? frankenstein
1: i think there's several factors i think that one you have a better cast i think that the filming techniques and technology have advanced to make a tighter film and i think that the the best parts of the original frankenstein movie is the ideas of a complex and sympathetic monster and they lean more into that and that becomes the star of this film and Boris Karloff is really the star of this film. As opposed to the last one, he's still the supporting character. Colin Clive is still the main character here, and they switch. And I think that that difference, um, difference in lens makes all the difference in the world and makes this movie a superior movie.
0: So a follow-up, the movie is very famous. Um, it's a lot goofier than its predecessor. This, in a lot of ways, might be seen as one of the first horror comedies. Do you think that contributes to it being a better movie as well? Because you were kind of down on Uno O'Connor as many.
1: Yes. Um, I think that the worst parts of this movie involve Uno O'Connor. Um, I don't enjoy any scene with her in it. Uh,
0: At all? Not even like when she first runs in and gets to deliver the It's Alive line and no one believes her and she just gets to say, Fine, I wash my hands of it. I'm going to be I, murdered good in and it, I I agree. I, mean, I agree that Una goes far, like, that same scene of, like, her screaming hysterically is played, like, one or time, two times too many, but I do enjoy it, like, the first couple times we see it.
1: I think I get why she is there. I think that she adds some levity to a, a more brutal movie, really. This yeah. movie, even though it's it's having to go through the um, the codes it is it is far more brutal that opening scene where the monster kills the parents of maria is brutal and yeah. uh so i i get the temptation to want to add some comedy and levity to a much more violent and visceral movie um but she feels like a a relic of the past where that kind of humor just does not resonate in this time and era. and just does not resonate with me.
0: I, I There's an interesting idea from uh, James. Well, very famously wanted nothing to do with this movie. He felt he'd said everything he wanted to with the first Frankenstein, but universal persisted and he decided he would do it uh, basically in exchange for complete artistic control, which he was, mostly granted with the exception of some censorship things but um and we should point out
1: that this is an era in which the producers are the more important people in film today we talk about directors all the time but back then that was never the case if you look at the posters of these movies they don't say a james well movie they say they call him a carl lemley jr movie and so it is really
0: important and significant how much control he did have of this movie Right. They really believed in him. And not that the movie Gods and Monsters is totally historically accurate, but um, Ian McKellen as James Whale has this great, great line in it where he's talking about Bride of Frankenstein and they're kind of putting the screws to him for it being a comedy. Those are, you know, two genres that don't blend for everyone. And he kind of says like, well, I had to make it interesting for me. It's a movie about death, so I wanted it to be funny. And I think that's just like kind of a great response whether or not that's something that whale actually said or thought i i don't know but the idea is incepted within me now and i think that kind of contributes to the genius of the movie because overall i don't think that the movie is hysterical you know i i think that things like cabin in the woods are a lot more funny i think bride of frankenstein still a lot more of a horror movie but you know those moments to kind of undercut the seriousness of everything to, to play up the campiness, I think is kind of what makes the movie. It pushes it into like that upper atmosphere of this is a masterpiece. And uh, for me personally, that's summed up by our fantastic finale where we have just had a huge emotional gut punch. The, the preceding 70 minutes has been this horrible journey through loneliness of getting the monster a mate and she's finally here at terrible cost and she hates him she can't stand the sight of him he's been rejected and um he has his hands near the lever the lever that will blow everyone to atoms which is just hanging there in the laboratory and i love that moment of of them just screaming the lever uh, followed by an amazing model shot of the the old watchtower getting blown to smithereens. Like to me, Bride of Frankenstein is not as great without moments like that.
1: Yeah, no, and I think I think the the change in tone is. And I'm not I'm not criticizing the tone. I'm just criticizing Uno O'Connor. Um, I think the change in tone <laughs> is what helps the movie to to be something so great. I think the problem with a lot of The problem with a lot of sequels is that they just try to recreate what they did in the first movie that made it popular. And instead of trying to go into a new direction and do something a little different. uh, And here they did that. They did something that is completely stands on its own, has a different tone, has different everything, uh, yet works as a sequel. And that's part of what makes this movie very successful. I think it also ratchets up the level of violence and comedy, but it also ratchets up the level of emotion. Uh, the emotion that, yes. that Karloff emotes from the monster is heartwarming, and the other actors, I think it's kind of jarring to watch them back-to-back because you see the change in actors so, <laughs> so much. And,
0: and, and setting, yeah, it's, it's a completely different world from one that supposedly like you said, it picks up right when the windmill is burning down. So there's not even like a gap.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is, is so unrecognizable, but I think that Valerie Hobson as Elizabeth Frankenstein actually is a better actress.
0: She's a better, she is a better Elizabeth than Mae Clark. I agree.
1: Yeah. And, and she, I mean,
0: to be fair, it is a thankless role for both of them.
1: It is, it's true, but, um, there's just so many great performances and even though hers is small She elevates her small character to the best of its ability. Everybody does a good job in their roles. um, And I think that that's what makes this movie just a little better. I mean, oh man, it's just so good. It's so good. And then can we, let's talk about Elsa Lanchester. I need to get to her. Sorry. I need to, I need to. Yes, please. Elsa Lanchester, I think is one of the, the standouts of this movie. So she is at the very beginning of the movie, instead of picking up exactly where we left off. We, we kind of go meta, and we leave the story of Frankenstein, and we have Elsa Lanchester playing um, Mary Shelley, and she's with Lord Byron and her husband Percy Shelley, uh, played by Gavin Gordon and Douglas Walton, respectively.
0: In a recreation of how the original novel actually was conceived, as this, this ghost story at this Swiss manor while they were locked in from a rainstorm.
1: Yeah, and they you know, the what they allude to is that the entire first movie was just her telling them a story on a rainy night. And then she goes on to say, well, there's more to it and I want to tell you this story. But there's just this, the way that they film it and the way that they speak is just so um, theatrical and dramatic and they're supposed to be the most beautiful and sophisticated people where they can roll their R's at every word, even if there's not an R. And they display, like, this is the best of humanity, almost, right? And Elsa at least
0: the, the upper class. The, the upper... Very wealthy. The yeah. Very, like you said, the beautiful people. The beautiful
1: people. And Elsa Lanchester has... I, I, I think she has one of the most interesting looks. She just has this look that is pretty, but also off. There's just something strange about her face. And then you don't see her again until the end of the movie, where she plays the bride the monster's bride which is supposed to allude to the idea that there are monsters within us even the most beautiful and and sophisticated of people can have these dark looming secrets which I think does play into some of the subtext of uh, James Wells sexuality but just seeing her do these two different roles and her portrayal of the bride as this I don't know, this bird-like creature and hissing is just so odd and fascinating and beautiful. I just love it. I mean, every time she's on the screen, and she's only on the screen for like what? Maybe ten
0: minutes? Oh, less, I'd say five. Probably yeah, five I mean, or may- something. If if you count if you count her as Mary Shelley, like maybe seven or eight. But it she she
1: gut punches you into remembering her. I mean and I think it's such a beautiful performance, and
0: not yeah, and not just with the look. I mean, the the like you said, the image of the bride, the crazy hair with the white stripe through it, like that's a striking image. But like you said, even her movements, um, and the and the hiss that's inspired by how nasty swans are apparently, um, is is something that sticks with you and something that I thought was interesting. On the the Blu Ray that Universal put out, there's a a little making of retrospective called "She's Alive," and they point out that. The Bride is really the only iconic female movie monster. And I've been trying to think, I'm surely since 1931, or 1935, we've had at least two or three more iconic female movie monsters. I can't think of one.
1: Species? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's the only one I can think of where... It's if they made a whole series of movies where it was one actress or one character and she was female and she was a monster
0: sure okay, okay. but that's isn't that kind of sad that our our silver medal is Sil from species
1: yeah yeah that's pretty bad but but
0: but but i mean i i shouldn't say that as to disparage but i mean i think that speaks to what you're saying elsa lancaster kills it with a laughably short amount of screen time. This movie is called The Bride of Frankenstein. The bride shows up in the last eight minutes.
1: Yeah, it I mean it is it is sad um how little time they got although they did there is a movie called The Bride, uh made years later where it takes place after the events of this movie kind of where she survives and Frankenstein survives and they go on to have a love affair. Oh, okay.
0: I've never that seen it. Does kind of cheapen the ending? <laughs> It's it's not candy. We, yeah, we should we should segue this because I want to talk about this movie through the lens of what it says about loneliness and companionship, as well as to what you alluded to um, with James Whale's sexuality. For for anyone who's not familiar, James Whale was one of the very few openly gay people in Hollywood at the time. And um, as I understand it, it's not that he was flamboyant or an activist or anything like that. He just was kind of like, yeah, that's who I am. Let's make a movie. And, and that we mentioned in the original movie's conversation. We, we look at this movie now and I think there's such an interesting reading of it as um, a message from the mind of a gay man in a time where that was entirely unacceptable because uh, the, the movie is made up of, you know, pairs of men wanting to create life and trying to wrest control away from the idea in like a christian culture of what's normal and good and um kind of playing with it a little because the i think the movie simultaneously is embracing a lot of christian ideals and uh the the scene that you love so much that you mentioned the the sequence with the blind man i think is a masterpiece because of how it deals with these ideas uh because this is this is the monster's paradise. I don't think in all of the canon of films that have covered this particular character, I don't think he's ever had a happier moment, do you? No. I think that that is kind of what makes the movie more digestible for modern audiences because it very obviously if it if it doesn't say it purposefully, at least it at least obviously has something to say about how we treat people who fall outside of um, the norm of society in air quotes uh, because it goes back to nature versus nurture is the monster bad because he's inherently evil or is it how he is just pushed out of society and uh, when he finally finds somebody that wants to be his friend it's perfectly amiable he's he's totally fine eating bread and wine and he learns to talk and there's there's this I I wouldn't say that that's a romantic scene. I think that embodies the the ideal of just good old-fashioned brotherly love. And so it's I think it depends. It kind of flips. I, oh, go ahead.
1: I think it depends. I think there's a lot of um there's a lot of ways to view this movie. I think that the intention was for it to be brotherly love and for it to be just this beautifully sincere spiritual scene not necessarily religious but very this this really wonderful scene however i do think that there is a certain level of of gay window shopping here where you can see that dr pretorius is flamboyantly uh somewhat alluded to queer character um is taking away frankenstein on the on the eve of his wedding where they're supposed to have their honeymoon and instead they're going to go and talk about unnatural ways to create life. Right. Um, And then Frankenstein or the monster goes and he has this uh, relationship with this man and lives with him having what could be seen as a gay relationship that is completely destroyed as soon as society spills into their home and rejects them. I don't, I don't think, and, and there's been many, many things that have said that that was not the intention of, uh, of whale, well, and he had he did not put that in at all. But I do think that it's fair to say that one's life is in uh, one's art is influenced by their life. And even though he was an openly gay man who was proud of who he was, he didn't have an easy life. And so I can't help but to think that at times he sympathized with the Frankenstein monster as feeling like an outcast in society.
0: And beyond just. I mean if we if we strip away any religious connotations any political whatever um I have to call out this line which I think is a moment that tells me this is a masterpiece this isn't just like oh it's a good horror movie or it's a good old movie like this line tells me just great movie period and it's very simple but alone bad friend good and I know that's really easy but doesn't that sum up such a beautiful an all-encompassing idea about the human experience.
1: Couldn't say better myself.
0: That entire scene with the hermit is great because you—it's even just narratively structured amazingly well. He, the the old man even calls it out that we're both creatures of affliction. I cannot see, and you cannot speak, and we will we will be a comfort to each other. And you have the beautiful little organ playing Ave Maria as it ramps up towards their their tearful crescendo. It's it's absolutely the highlight of the movie because it's a redemptive moment and it's just speaks to how everyone just needs somebody else to believe in them and to confide in. And it's beautiful to see this monster get it at that moment. And and you suggested in general impressions, you can't just watch this as like a YouTube clip because you miss the context. And I agree that Everything in this movie builds up to that moment because the monster is once again captured, ostracized. He's literally stoned and jailed. And um, the moment I think is actually one of the more heartbreaking is when he is stumbling through the countryside. He stops at a pool of water to get a drink and he sees himself in the reflection and he's angry. He lashes out at himself, which I think is a great commentary on how people who are told they are abominations Lash out at themselves. They begin to see themselves with that hating eye, and it's followed by uh, a beautiful young shepherdess. I think falls falls into the water at the side of him, and he rushes in to save her. And I think that's a moment that makes this a superior sequel because he learned. He learned. He. This is a callback to to little Maria. He's not gonna let another person drown. What an awesome character moment.
1: No, for sure. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, the movie, is it, it learns from the previous, it takes lessons, and it just ramps them up in, in really beautiful ways. There's a scene that I wish they were able to keep in the movie. There's a scene where he's running through graveyards, uh, which, which I had actually never noticed this before, but when he's in the blind man's hut and the two hunters come in, they make a statement, they say something like, He's made up of dead bodies. And I I never noticed this before, but Frankenstein reacts or the monster reacts to that like in shock. Like, wait, what? Like now that he's understanding words more, he understands where he's come from. And immediately after that, where does he run to? He runs to a cemetery because that's where he thinks he belongs, which is so depressing. I mean, that is such that's so subtle. I've watched this movie a ton and I've never actually noticed that reaction. And what happens after, and that's, that's really beautiful. But what I think is really interesting, that earlier in the movie, he's captured by the people. He's put up on this log, and he's essentially crucified as he's carried through the mm-hmm. town, um, which, is, which is kind of an interesting thing that he was resurrected first and then crucified as an inverse Christ. But mm-hmm. when he goes into the cemetery and he sees a, a big old bishop statue, he takes it and he rips it down, and then he finds a crypt to go to. The original idea was to have that to be a statue of Christ on the cross, which you could actually see in the background. And he was going, he was going to see that, and this was going to be sort, somewhat like saving the girl who's almost drowning. He would see the Christ on the cross, and he was going to try to rip Christ off the cross because he would have recognized him as another person in distress. Mm-hmm. And then realizing that it was just stone and wood he would be so distraught that he'd push it over, and then he would discover the crypt. But the censors wouldn't allow them to do it because they thought that that was too blasphemous. So instead, he Shoot. takes out his rage on a Catholic bishop or cardinal, which almost seems more antagonistic as, as not a I know, But I love that. Well, it's not in the movie, but I love that concept, and I wish it was. I wish they kept it in there.
0: I want to carry this the scene of the crypt forward, but I want to segue really quick about the censorship thing that i am also surprised by that because to me that seems like a beautiful moment to recognize even though the monster may not understand it that you know hey here's a guy who gets it he came back from the dead and everyone hated him uh it's it's kind of surprising that they they skipped on that but left in the scene where pretorius flat out said when he's introducing his little people in the jars that I made, I made a queen. Uh, we made her a queen because she was beautiful. And because we had a queen, we had to make a king. And the third one looked so disapprovingly at everyone else that we had to make him a bishop. So it's kind of funny they would leave that in there and the statue of the bishop toppling over, but not this beautiful moment with uh, the monster in the crucifix. But that's a fantastic insight that he, he goes to the place where he's just learned, hey, maybe I belong here among the dead. And that, that even makes that sequence right after so much more poignant when he opens up the, the coffin of the, the beautiful woman in the veil and just asks friend and doesn't get a response. That's another one that's just heartbreaking. And that's a a scene of supreme loneliness, I think, which, um, makes the next one all the better because we have Dr. Pretorius coming in with his goons to exhume the bones of the young woman to make the bride out of. And, uh, getting to have a little picnic and i love just the sheer disrespect for like the solemnity of life and death that <laughs> tortorius just sets up his picnic basket on the crypt and smokes his cigar and gets to take advantage of this monster in its time of ultimate vulnerability it has learned it needs companionship its fr- his friend has been taken he's searching the crypts of the dead for another one and finding nobody You know, what better time to be able to manipulate this thing into doing his bidding? But uh, let's be real. That's one of the reasons I love Dr. Pretorius. Can we talk about Dr. Pretorius for a minute? Yes. (laughs) I just get so excited because Ernest Fessinger, he commits to that campy scenery chewing overacting that we see in the prologue with um, Lord Byron and Mary Shelley. And we get, you know, Uno O'Connor probably takes it a little too far. Thessinger is always pitch perfect because that's his character. His character is to openly despise everything that is quote-unquote normal about the world. He just does what he wants. Science is a means to his own glory and lust for power. And it's just so much fun to watch him enjoy being the devil figure. At at every turn, so you know you could argue that that robs him of any sort of real humanity. But I think if the movie is about that dichotomy of do we do some things sometimes that upset the natural order and go too far? Should we be more conservative or ought we to, you know, push into the unknown because look at how many great things have come of that? Which is the speech that Frankenstein gives in the first movie. Well, Pretorius gets to embody. What happens when you go too far. And he's always entertaining. He's always fantastic.
1: Pertorius is the proto Heath Ledger Joker. And the Frankenstein monster is Two-Face. I mean, he's a character who (laughs) wants to see the world burn. He wants to see it changed and to disrupt the natural order of things. And he will manipulate uh, those in power to do it dr Pretorius' whole thing is just fascinating and and he and he, it is played up beautifully. I would say that i could I could do without the the little people
0: <laughs> really
1: um i I think it's a little i mean I enjoy the scene it's funny, but I think it's a little too campy i could if there was one complaint I had, I would turn down some of the camp in the movie not not Dr Pretorius so much but just some of those like the little like i don't know just like it just was very childish. All of a sudden, it's like you hear the voices, like, <laughs> They're
0: like trying to go after yeah, each yeah. other, and um... scientifically accurate, David. That is what three inch people sound like. Okay. <laughs> no, I I guess I could see it. To me, that scene all at once succeeds in being so campy, but also again building on ideas from the last one because that's that's his pitch for why Frankenstein needs to work with him. That Frankenstein achieved life, he created a man, but he did it from secondhand materials. One of the things I think is most interesting about the Frankenstein I the idea of Frankenstein is he's a man in quest of creating life, and yet he has to harness elements that are already there. He cannot actually create flesh. He has to stitch the body from the pieces of corpses he has to harness lightning in order to breathe life into his creations like he he is still dependent on power outside of himself to do this and i like that the introduction of the little people introduces the idea that you can grow this artificially i made these people from seed this is an this is almost entirely a man-made creation but i can't get them to be full scale so we need to work together on that and that's kind of the Bride is the culmination, that she's mostly artificial. Her brain is artificial. I think they grow her body from those bones, and then her heart is um, from a, a murder victim of Carl's. But So I, I, I guess I see the campiness, but to me that, that whole thing with the little people is this great expo to sell Frankenstein on the idea of collaboration and then the, the talk that they have afterward about... What we really need to do is create a woman so that these two can get together and breed and we can have a man-made race upon the earth. And if it sounds stupid, it was kind of the central crux of what (laughs) Neander Wallace or whatever Jared Leto's name was in Blade Runner 2049. His plot is Pretorius's from Bride of Frankenstein. I can't make these enough. I need them to breed.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, like, it totally makes sense. Like, I, I get it. I get thematically why it's there. It's just, it was a little hokey. That's all. And and there's a, oh, there's yeah. <laughs> something that always bugs me is that when they when they show the back of the little creatures, there's uh one or two creatures there that they didn't show us.
0: Is there more than just the baby? I thought the baby was the only one that. It might get it the might intro. just be the
1: baby, but I was looking at that and was like. Why didn't we get to see the baby? Like, I just wonder where on the floor somewhere there are scenes from the movies. Because there is one, there is another scene (laughs) here that throws me off is like when the monster seemingly goes on a murder rampage through the town out of nowhere and there's nothing that alludes to it. It just, he kills a little girl and he kills a, a, a woman and man in their home randomly.
0: Right. But I assume you know the backstory behind that. I actually don't. So, the original script, I think it was Carl, was on a murder rampage and he was pinning them on the monster. And I don't remember if that draft had been completely overturned before they started filming, but I'd always come to the understanding that some of that stuff was filmed with the implication that, um, yeah, it didn't make sense for the monster to do that because it actually wasn't him, but carl was able to pin it on him because obviously there's a monster at large he's the one that did it okay you know i had that in the back of my mind but i i couldn't remember if i was just making that up okay i might be totally off they might have totally canned that idea before they even started filming Uh, that is a sequence to me that feels most like the original in that yeah there's some logic gaps i think it's i think it kind of is just there to to make the monster seem dangerous uh, but I find it misplaced in this movie because making him dangerous does not seem to be the, the goal of the movie. I think the movie is trying to make him a redempted figure. And those those seem very harshly motivated murders, even more so than just the, um, the opening, the husband and the father and mother of little Maria because, you know, he drowns the father because, yeah, he just got trapped in a windmill and burned. He's a little upset. Like, you understand where he's coming from. You know, wrongful imprisonment too, I guess I get it. But yeah, it is, it is a little out of step.
1: But I mean, overall, I think this is, this is a movie that lays a foundation for movies to come. And I think that's one of the reasons why people should see this movie is that it plants so many different seeds in storytelling and cultural um, iconography and all sorts of things into our society, into our films, into our storytelling that, uh, going back to the original, I think it's just important to see where these ideas come from. And they're laid out so well. And I almost wish that they would have stopped making movies, (laughs) stopped making Frankenstein movies after this. Although, I'll admit that I actually do enjoy the entire Frankenstein series. Um, Oh, they're
0: fun, yeah. They're just clearly not up to this level.
1: No, and they're not trying to say anything. uh, Here... There is a clear message, and um, and 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 we and it can't be said enough. Karloff, Karloff's performance— who he was adamantly against this performance because he did not think that the a monster should ever speak—he just does so well. I mean, it is so. I mean, there's you, there's performances where we attribute uh, fame to them because they started something. Bela Lugosi Dracula is is pretty great, but in the end, at the end of the day. Could there have been somebody else? Probably. I mean, maybe that's a no. hot take. That's a hot take. But I yeah, mean, a, I th- That's a hot take. I don't, I don't think that... I think that in looking at their performances for their their signature roles, Karloff gives a much better performance and an iconic performance compared to somebody like Lugosi or Lon Chaney sure. Jr. I think, he's, and and he's I like also Lon Chaney Jr. Movie. as the Wolfman as well. I mean, I think that these guys are great, but I think that... I could easily do without them. I could not do without Karloff.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I would give shoutouts to at least Bela Lugosi, but no doubt, like Be- Boris Karloff and Bride of Frankenstein, that's that's the crown jewel performance of this entire era of horror filmmaking. And uh, yeah, I think he's helped by being able to speak. I think it's wise that he doesn't. He's not eloquent. That he's still kind of picking up the language, but. I think that's not only a new development, a good idea for a sequel that it's not just retreading the same ground. But again, it makes him a lot more accessible. In the first one, you, re- you know, it's very obvious that we're still addressing this idea of loneliness and being misunderstood. Um, but when you get to in The Bride of Frankenstein, give him a voice to confront it, it lets you into the core of what his character is a lot better. And um, he still has a lot of moments of great silent acting for lack of a better word. I think their entire, the the mock wedding, I guess you could call it at the end where the bride is horrified of him because of how he looks and the the utter dejection and really depression. I mean, that's that's what it is. And I think that's something the, the end of the movie gets right As as much as I could buck against the end for doubling or stepping back on like the progressive ideas it has that it still has to get all the the quote-unquote abominations of nature. It has to get Frank, the monster, the bride, and Pretorius in a room and say, you belong dead. And, you know, the last shot is this beautiful heterosexual couple holding each other because they get to live. Um, you know, as as much as I could fault the movie for that, you know, this, this is a reality of people who feel ostracized by society. You get to the point where if there's no one who has your back, you get suicidal. Yeah. And so as as hokey as it is with, you know, the lever, that's still a very poignant moment.
1: Yeah. No, I, I think so. I mean, he, he, it, it is a, it is a complete character study on depression and what leads one to suicide in an albeit unusual way. Uh, I think that there are elements of th- there's recognizable elements of the decision-making of these characters that are all too real and and really depressing when you really sit down to think about it and take it in
0: it's such a better movie than i think it's given credit for just just among like kind of mainstream viewers critically it is adored but i i think the temptation is to recommend this and say oh it's it's a really good like old monster movie like it's not like old monster movies this one's really good again i think it's it's a great movie period has a great message finds a very fun entertaining digestible way to to ingest those it's it's a masterpiece
1: ditto it is a masterpiece (laughs) it is beautiful and it does not even though critically it's adored through history books it is it does not get its credit um nowadays and i think more and more people need to go out and watch this movie and enjoy it for what it is and it is beautiful and great and it still holds up It. Still holds up. Yeah, there are going to be scenes that are going to be hard because they're old. It's an hour and 15 minutes. You can deal with a couple of minutes that are weird.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Again, in both of them, if if there are scenes that don't work that you can laugh at because they're hokey, like you just got to sit tight because some of the, the best scenes in all of horror are right around the corner.
1: And I think it's a mistake to think that just because something may be hokey or campy and you have the temptation to laugh, that's fine. You can laugh. Yeah, uh, that doesn't yeah. take away from the really really powerful uh transcendent moments in these films. You know like in the original one when when uh the monster tries to attack uh Elizabeth in the first one and she screams <laughs> yes. and you see him and he goes Raw! like I laugh every Raw! time.
0: <laughs> it's great. It's funny and I don't think that's, it was meant to be funny, like, but it's fine. It's kind of his it's kind of his version of like the sexy little <laughs> <laughs> No, it's fantastic. So, yeah, we're we're very high on these movies, and we're releasing this episode pretty early in October. So, if you haven't seen them, like the the season is right. And again, this is both these movies are are one movie nights. Like you can go out, rent them, get some popcorn, two and a half hours. You've seen two absolutely classic horror movies.
1: Definitely go out of your way, do it. It doesn't cost you that much money. Just do it. It's Halloween. It's October. This is the month to do it. Yeah. Educate yourself.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, uh, is there any... We're kind of at time, but is there anything else you'd like to say about either movie?
1: Uh, go and watch these movies. I think everything... I think there's nothing more we can add. I do want to add that uh, screw you, Ryan Victory, and screw you, Mike. I don't hate Independence Day. I really like Independence <laughs> Day. But you guys took that out of context. Also, the goodies. If you haven't seen it as a child, it's not a good movie. I did not it's see not, it as no, a I'm child, not. and so screw you, Victory.
0: I'm, w- I'm with you. Goonies isn't good. We, we actually did do that as like, I wonder if David listens to these. So you passed the test. <laughs> You're right. If So David and I had a very spirited discussion oh, uh, 10 episodes back-ish about Independence Day. He does not hate it. We He is not super high on it but he gets that it's fun and dumb so i recommend that episode it's a lot of fun and i'm i'm sorry for any wrongs we've done to you (laughs) please please don't drown us
1: (laughs) i'll try not to also
0: though i I feel like i kind of want to keep doing episodes to um, perpetuate this like screw you game that you and ryan have going on so is there anything we can do uh, to get Ryan's goat to have him yell, screw you back at us.
1: My brain's not working right now, so I can't think of anything.
0: <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll just leave it at screw you victory. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always a, a pleasure to talk horror with you, even though I might have to, on your next episode, insist you you shy away to something a little more light.
1: All right, well, that sounds good. It's always a pleasure being here. Thanks for having me, Mike.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the timing was great. I'm so happy we will continue to be... Talking Scary Movies. Uh, So everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, Again, be sure to visit episode 23's post at cinemus.com and vote on the must-see statuses of these movies. You are the ones who are going to decide whether or not they truly should be considered movies that everyone has to see. Uh, That poll is going to be open on our website until midnight on October 21st. So if you're catching us pretty close to release day, you still got about two weeks to watch these movies and tell us what you think of them. I can't wait to see what you say. And uh, we hope that you will join us in two weeks. We're going to keep the scary movie theme rolling. We are going to welcome back Jeffrey Crisp to the show. And we're going to take a look at horror with a more meta lens with the more modern classic Scream and Cabin in the Woods. Uh, So it's going to be super fun. I'm very excited to keep talking horror movies. But, David, thank you for shepherding a fantastic discussion on two true classics. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's fun. Any last words? Did we
0: frighten you? Or... Horrify you. (laughs) Horrify you. All right, man, let's head over to the windmill.